is this thing on? <laughs> Long time no see, everyone. Welcome to this very special episode of Tengri Dome. I'm your host, Iggy. And the reason this episode is so special is that I've, I have finally brought guests to speak, uh, to, to, to break with the usual formula of just me prattling on about whatever it is I find interesting to talk about at the moment. And instead, prattle on about stuff two other people may have some thoughts about. Uh, with me today are Dan Albert, also known as Dong Albert, he of the big Dong, a previously independent fight scholar and fight fan who wrote a whole bunch of fascinating articles about fighting on his personal blog, Pion of Secrets, and now he writes for the fight site. We finally got our gnarly claws on him and snatched him up. Hello, Dan. How are you and your brain goblins doing? I think brain goblins is perfectly act because everyone is trying to kill me today, I think. But uh, I, I'm a, I'm okay. Just, it's been a day. I mean, we are all having a day today, aren't we? <laughs> Going by the numerous failed attempts to record this already. All right. Um, he is joined by Hexerized, he of the Rised Hex. I don't even know what that means. Hexerized is the Fight Sites perennial absent-minded professor uncle who pops up every once in a while to make fun of small children on the Fight Sites MMA podcast, write deep and heartfelt articles, and call Dana White a big, bold cunt. Hello, Dad! How's the lawnmower doing? I think the best thing about that is I'm, like, tall enough that 99% of the population are children to me. Like, what a fantastic way of cheating. That's using my natural advantages to get an advantage in a fight. I'm pretty sure that's brilliant. I'm brilliant. I'm not brilliant. Kill me. You, you are what they call a size bully. All right. And so the reason I brought these nerds together today is that I wish to have a conversation that I feel has been uh, a long time coming. The fight site is uh, what you call an analysis hub inspired in part by people like uh, Luke Thomas, Jack Slack and the Heavy Hands Boys. And uh, everyone else at the fight site will hate me for saying this, but I mean, it's true. So... And the community that has formed around those figures has partly been drawn to our work as well. So we've managed to amass a bit of a following over, this last two, over these last two years. But uh, one thing that frequently goes unmentioned in all this, uh, and um, as everything that has to do with MMA in some way or another, parallels the youth and uncouthness of the sport and that nobody can actually give a real definition of what fight analysis even is, and uh, like, what is the methodology? What constitutes good fight analysis? Uh, how does one understand fighting in the first place? And uh, I mean, this isn't a rebuttal to anything, and it's it's not meant to be a response to anything. Even though we all know that the MMA community is all too willing to take some pretty impl- impressive leaps of logic in their reasoning and evaluation of the sport. This is uh, strictly for educational purposes. Uh, like what draws me personally to combat sports beyond the obvious reasons is that it's uh, it's a good mental exercise, if anything. It's intellectually stimulating to talk about these things and to shitpost about this, these things. And fighting is an incredibly intricate and complex topic to examine and cover. Uh, I mean, I talk about this all the time and that uh, and I always sound feel like a, an asshole for saying this, like a pretentious asshole for saying this in that. Fighting is a microcosm of the human condition. Like it reflects everything that has to do with the experience of being alive in an incredibly intense and condensed manner. And so, thinking about fighting and analyzing fighting in particular in combat sports in general, uh, I mean, as an institution, has actually helped me systematize and recontextualize whatever pre existing knowledge I've had prior to becoming a fight fan. Not to mention all the knowledge I've managed to amass while studying fighting, 
And so at first glance, some of it may seem like it doesn't even have anything to do with fighting like history or politics, geopolitics and economics, societal problems, et cetera, et cetera. And yet here we are. Uh, but that's that's a bit beyond the scope of today's episode. So let's not uh, disturb that for now. Uh, we may touch upon it a little bit during our discussion. But for now, let's settle on answering the question I posited in the beginning. Like, what is analysis? So this whole question to me is kind of really interesting because, like, we're mostly speaking in terms of, like, fight analysis. But I, I kind of always go back to a conversation I had when I was a young little lad and whatnot. Um, but I, I th always came to understand analysis as kind of the science of explanation, as in it's kind of how you think about concepts and you extrapolate upon them or you simplify them or you expand what they mean ultimately to a wide variety of people or to just some specific niche that you're talking to. And so what analysis often just amounts to is just kind of thinking outside of the basic, what am I looking at? And more so asking like, what kind of greater foundations can I talk about? And I, I think there are a lot of prerequisites to doing analysis and I can get into what I think it is, but I tend to think that, um, I think anyone can do analysis. I think everyone and anyone is capable of doing it, but the reality is not really everyone does for a couple of reasons. The first is that the reality is it's not something I think people are inclined to do. I think a lot of it goes into laziness. I think a lot of it goes into a, a lot of people just being kind of nervous to take on that different threshold. I think there's a huge difference between knowing something versus understanding something. And I tend to think there's just a lot of effort and unwillingness to like collaborate in the greater scheme of things. Cause analysis isn't just a one person job. It's a multiple person job. But, but I think that's my answer to what is analysis less so than some more extrapolated concepts. Nice. Uh, yeah. Speaking of, uh, of analysis being a team effort. So, Hex, what are your thoughts on this? I know uh, you've prepared some kind of like an entire novel that you can steal uh, an entire passage from. <laughs> in Ghana, go bonk, no, um So, I always kind of like to start with summary or like what's a summary? Because I think everyone summarized something, right? Like you, you read something or you consume media or an experience and you kind of, you tell people what happened, right? Like that's analysis. Sorry, that's summary. And that's like the first stage of, I think, talking about anything. You summarize what happened. You know, you try and help people relive the experience. And I think the next level is kind of explaining things, right? Like you, you go beyond the summary. You don't just repeat what happened. You start trying to, you know, like explain the why and the how. And I think analysis is kind of really extending an explanation you know whereas like explanation is kind of i guess trying to help somebody understand why something happened right like analysis is taking that explanation to the next level it's trying to actually you know reach a conclusion or make an argument you'll go into greater detail on like specific parts of whatever you're analyzing kind of kind of that that kind of stuff and i think to kind of put a broader picture to that in MMA, I think just about everybody is capable of analysis. And I think 
just about everybody actually does analysis, even the most casual MMA viewer in their own way. The question is more to what, like, breadth and depth do they analyze MMA? So how deep do they go into specific examples? Like, how many examples do they look at? And maybe to channel some good old Douglas Adams, you know, how many people think about analysis or try and, like get an answer to something in MMA they're thinking about without even knowing what the actual question they're asking is. So, yeah, those are kind of be my, like, basic intro thoughts. Yeah, I've always wondered about, like, uh, the reason I'm asking this question in the first place is that I can't actually come to a conclusion myself in that respect because, like, to me, what I used to do was just, I was just simply studying fighting and I wasn't trying to, uh, like, break something any break anything down on any given fighter's game for like to any significant extent i was just trying to understand what what's what's happening in front of me as a viewer and then i just sort of spiraled <laughs> basically just spiraled out of control to the point where i got interested in it enough that uh, basically i tried to weasel my way into the fight side stuff and to talk about this professionally and uh, that's kind of what happened with a lot of these uh, people I mentioned before. Like, for example, Jack Slack, he always talks about how he doesn't consider himself an, an analyst. He just considers himself a dude who talks about fighting. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's a, a bit of a way of covering his own ass uh, from criticism. In that just, hey, yeah, I'm just... just I'm just talking shit about stuff. I just uh, I'm I'm not trying to educate anyone. I'm just I just like this. So what what do you think what what's the real difference between like being a, a quote unquote a fight analyst or trying to do analysis versus just simply trying to understand fighting? So uh I I think we were all asked uh by a follower of the site a question a few weeks ago just kind of general out there like if What's like the purpose of analysis? Loki was the uh, implicit question, but he was kind of asking if you get a pick wrong and you're a quote unquote analyst, does that mean your analysis is unreliable? And that kind of, I think, kind of misses the point of what like an analyst in our position is trying to do. So once again, going with like the semantics of like, um, what is what isn't an analyst so I, I think it's actually a good mindset to not necessarily consider ourselves analysts more so i think we're kind of like learned individuals as in like researchers who are trying to explain like kind of these difficult concepts of like a sport or a bunch of sports that aren't necessarily as mainstream as your typical everyday kind of activities and we're trying to build kind of a foundation to understand those. So I think to answer that question, though, what we as fight analysts are trying to do, though, lies more within we're trying more so to consider this idea of how do we see these dynamics play out? How do we see these choices of these fighters go against each other? The result is like kind of a secondary thing. So like if we get the outcome of like the direct like ultimate outcome, this guy so-and-so won the fight, good or bad, but that's not really what we're looking at. We're looking at like the dynamics that are going to happen. Uh, 
like these two guys, like how are they going to match up to each other? How are they going to deal with each other? How are they different to each other? How can we explain that to a bunch of people who may not be able to articulate it? Because one thing that's also very important about being in this analytical position is you have to also explain it to other people. You have to take what goes on in our head and explain it to just this wide, like, variety of people who don't maybe have the same education or eye for detail as you do and just kind of building upon that. And so I think, um, I I think like the way Slack approaches it is less so of um, covering his ass, so to speak. I think it's kind of more of a way of just acknowledging, like, I don't know everything yet because this is a learning process for me, but it's my duty to help everyone else learn too. So I can create a community because that's something about uh, analysis that is actually really important. I don't think anyone's in this to quote unquote be the quote unquote best know all be all person of MMA minus a few bigoted exceptions. It's more so that we're trying to build a community of peers. Like if someone becomes better than me, for instance, that I've taught or explained things to, I think that's great. I think that's awesome. And likewise, if they make me better too, I think that's also great. But but I think it, it's a very like building process because you don't learn it overnight is kind of how I would answer this question. Certain fans like to point to point fingers to like quote unquote fight analysts and say, oh, this, this such and such person has bad takes. So uh, who does he think he is to call himself a fight analyst and just presume to lecture me about fighting at all? And uh, Really, like the way I see it, a lot of uh, like-minded people like us uh, just simply come from a position of, as a fight fan, we want to talk about this stuff. And if there's nobody to talk about this stuff with, well, you might want to explain this to them so you can then discuss it uh, going forward. Um, Okay, let's put on a researcher hat rather than like making a bad econometrics takes Twitter account and just mocking people. Um, I think the the question asked by the person maybe is in itself a good example of like question bias or maybe not seeing the bigger picture for the trees. Cause I'd say this kind of, if, if you're like question to people that call themselves analysts is, or how come you guys don't, I don't know, for lack of a better word, statistically test the effectiveness of your analysis, aren't you kind of presupposing the motivation for why they're doing the analysis in the first place? So, like, let's go to Jack Slack because he's the most public example of, you know, fight analysis in motion, even if he may not consider himself a fight analyst. I don't think Jack Slack has actually done predictions for fights almost ever. Like, he'll do a meme prediction, but for him to sit down and say, like, I reckon this top five guy fighting this top five guy. So people where you, you know, you have enough data where you can start talking about their preferences. I don't think he ever does that because I think fundamentally Jack Slack's motivation as an analyst is I like fighting. It's cool. Here's some cool shit. I'm going to tell you like what, what this cool stuff is and some of the mechanics of it. And I hope you enjoy it. So like there's, there's nothing in, if you like, um, Jack Slack's statement of analytical values that is really about prediction. He's not interested in predicting fights. That's not why he's there. So to maybe go to the the fight side as an example, 
I think that one mistake people make when they look at an organization like the Fight Site or even a group like the Heavy Hands podcast is people look at the aggregate and say everybody doing analysis in this group is is trying to achieve the same objective. And that's just not true. Like people like me and Ryan almost never actually do a serious prediction in fight picks. We shitpost all the time. Like I, that Connor vs. Dustin prediction, I just filled it full of like dumbass Connor alternate name puns and predicted like one fighter would win if X and one if Y. That's not a serious testable prediction and I've never pretended it was. Um, other people within the fight start staff predictions will deliberately pick a winner or loser as a hedge bet. Like, you know, to go against, like there's almost always somebody in the staff picks that will say, Everyone else is picking popular fighter or champion A. I, for this fight site prediction, am deliberately going to find ways for underrated fighter B to win. I'll tell you how I think it can happen, and I'll pick them. So I think that that very question to begin with of, like, why aren't analysts testing their predictions? I think we need to take a step back and say, what are the analysts trying to do in the first place like what is their goal of their analysis before we then ask how do we judge the effectiveness of their procedures as a fight analyst because you know to, to kind of use two very visible examples in the fight side staff serum and ryan are trying to do in every prediction and every podcast and every speaking opportunity and every pick something fundamentally different and telling the both of them why don't you just go on bet sites and see how good you are like they could do that but is that really capturing what they quite clearly signpost they intend to do as people analyzing fights i don't think it is yeah there's always this talk about uh, there being about judging analysts by the amount of uh, skin in the game so to speak they have and uh, it's a comment mostly done by bettors and uh, cappers and, and gamblers and the like. But uh, th- that's not really the reason why any of us, uh, any of the people you've just described do this in the first place. I mean, it's just, I mean, going back to the fundamental uh, like motivator for most of these people, it's just, it's just for fun. It's a, it's a fun thing to do. It's interesting to talk about the uh, this stuff and it's interesting to evaluate uh, the fighters game interesting to think about all these matchups and it's kind of um, it's uh, kind of circles back to the idea of fandoms uh, like as a phenomenon in the first place like the way would people would discuss like say I don't know a movie or a video game or the mechanics inside video game that's why it's uh, people like for example Phil McKenzie got into this in the first place like they Phil McKenzie used to be a a uh, a Tekken player, a competitive Tekken player, and this interest kind of uh, got carried over to uh, to actual combat sports. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I I suppose Dan would have lots of things to say about this. Yeah, I do. So I Iggy already uh, touched upon this, but I, I think there are several things that I, I think if you want to get into analysis, like really heavy like analysis um the main thing that you need to understand is i i think there are like four components and i had this conversation back with a friend of mine in the video game community who's really into the idea of analysis a long time ago but um the idea is that you have four things iggy already mentioned one 
them, but like many people who get into analysis like it. So I, I think a good reason why is because would you really want to do any of this and not be interested in it? Like even <laughs> like a part of you that's just like, yeah, I'm going to watch fights that I don't want to watch and I'm going to have fun doing that. I mean, I mean, there are psychopaths like me who watch boring fights, but the only reason I watch those boring fights is because there's maybe a component in there that I find interesting to understand. And which is why I got why I rewatched Romero Adesanya, for instance. And what other psychopath <laughs> Psycho. is going <laughs> to who else is going to fucking do that other than me? <laughs> but that's one of the things I think there are three other things. And, and this is where it kind of gets really, really important, though, because I think uh the other big thing is analysis. You have to dedicate yourself and learn the subject matter. And everyone's learning speed to this is just going to differ. Like you're not going to learn this overnight. You're not going to learn it yourself unless you put significant amount of practice into it. Cause some people who are going to approach this come from different backgrounds. Some people haven't trained like yours truly. Some people have, some people oh, don't know what they're looking at at first. Some people have access to people who do train Etc. And no matter what, you're going to have to learn sooner or later how to watch tape, how to watch these things. And it's going to take time. It's going to involve a lot of dedication and it's just going to involve work to get. And so it's really, really, I think, easy for people, like I said, who don't do it to just fall into that crowdsourcing bias where they just decide I'll come to an easier conclusion and this declarative statement instead of like looking into the results themselves. And that's, that's kind of a danger zone for that. And because people don't want to dedicate the time and that's understandable. It's a lot of work. The second thing is you kind of have to learn referentialism because the number one rule, as far as I'm concerned with analysis is that context matters. There's context. Goddamn's matters with everything. So like what you have to have, ones? Yeah, what is nuance? Like, what is you nuance? Have, yeah, it, it'd be like that. Like, you're not going to be able to come to complete conclusions without what knowing what things are or kind of understanding how they work. Once again, there is a huge difference, a huge difference between knowing something and understanding how it works. Like, Hacks, Hacks was talking about this earlier. You can say what something is, but do you understand how it works? Like, you can say, oh, this is why this... This guy is choosing to come forward, but how is he doing that? What's he specifically doing? And more importantly, why is he doing it? Can you get to that point? And if you do, can you prove that? Like, can you make the connection between those things? Do you have the references from their previous fights to back up a statement? Do you have all these things? It's supposed to be an argument, and you can't make an argument work without context. It's very, very important. And that leads to the very, very last thing, and this is – this is one of the more complicated things, and this is where I think negative perception of the analyst community does come in because there is a negative stigma. But um, you have to learn to recognize your own biases and distance yourself from them as much as possible. I, I'm a firm believer that the, there are two big traps. The biggest trap is like you can have a perfect one-to-one -one ratio of this I like equals the objective like analysis that is not necessarily true at all because personally i approach kind of these conversations with this mindset of oh what if i'm always wrong about this 
like I don't think the reality is you can eliminate bias. So the best solution to me is, okay, I acknowledge if I'm watching these two fighters, I'm going to like this guy more. I'm going to like watching that guy's body work more, which may affect me giving him around more or make me think he's being more effective. But I have to account for that in my statements by saying and stuff like and, and that kind of builds this kind of effort of self-awareness and that kind of allows you then to start asking questions and criticize those fighters like the other big issue with bias itself is like i think um one thing that is really really dangerous um that the analytical community of people like us who talk about we get perceived often as like oh we're this high authority and so when we say a fighter is bad or sucks that kind of discourages fans or listeners from liking those fighters and the reality is that's not a one-to-one ratio either and to be fair it's probably partially our fault for not like clarifying hey we have this kind of perception of a fighter versus our actual analysis from a fighter but it's still different from like how you the fan or listener might perceive them and that's kind of okay, but if you're going to argue with us about, like, the fighter's actual abilities, like, sure, we'll talk to you. That That's the other thing. Like, the analytical community, I, I think, like, does a poor job, like, communicating because I think people are very afraid of being wrong. Yeah, well, but, that's that's the entire thing, though, that there's, like, uh, the MMA community is, uh, as a whole, is very, is very combative. Like there's this, maybe it's a bit of a, maybe it's connected to the very nature of the sport where people, it's just people beating each other up. But there's this um, competitiveness uh, among the community where you always have to prove that you have the correct takes, the, the correct takes, as you said, so being uh, afraid of, uh, like, uh, people are afraid of being wrong, so they want their takes to be perceived as correct. They want to be perceived like they understand fighting. And uh, part of it stems from the fact that fighting is a bit of a, an escapist hobby. It's kind of like, it's very reminiscent of the various nerdy hobbies, like being into Lord of the Rings, for example. And uh, <laughs> many fight fans may dislike that uh, comparison, but uh, the behavioral tendencies are essentially the same i just and i i for example i don't like uh the way i for example i like training boxing but i'm not a good good boxer so i'm watching the good boxers do their thing to kind of so, sort of like enter this escapist reality but uh which leads to a lot of uh, stuff like people uh, putting a lot of personal stake into fighting and that's uh, one of the reasons for what uh, drives all these uh incessant uh drives this incessant discourse online i think tommy kind of mentioned has mentioned a few things because tommy tommy's a data scientist and i guess as an economist we kind of work with similar statistical clusterfucks shall we say um, he, he made a point that MMA is really high variance for a lot of different reasons, and it's even compared to other combat sports, and it's everything from um, it you have to do a lot less fights as a mixed martial artist to qualify to be a professional like um, fighter in, in most contexts. That's not like a hard and fast rule, but you know I think it's like five amateur MMA fights in America, and then you can become a pro. It's not a lot. Um, 
And I guarantee you that the average high-level amateur mixed martial arts fighter is fighting a lot less than the average high-level amateur, right? So even at this most basic level of what's the gap between pro and amateur, there's a usually a pretty big differential between boxing and MMA. And I think there's already enough issues with how the fuck do you design statistics that matter in boxing. Um, and, you know, <laughs> he, he talks also about, like, MMA has a higher variance because there's a larger confluence of styles. It's a younger sport, blah, 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 blah. But I don't want to talk too much about that. I just want to hit it at, like, a most basic level. You know, a really um, central and basic idea in statistics is the central limit theorem. And it's basically, like, one one thing that you can use to guide your sample size when you're doing, like, statistical analysis to make it less unfucky. I'm not going to explain the technical details because everybody that knows what it is knows what it means. But the short version is that textbooks kind of say you need a sample size, so, like, a size of data you're looking at, of at least between 20 and 50. Usually most textbooks say 30, you know, examples most professional fighters don't even fight 30 times in MMA, right? Like, so if, if you're going mean, to... If you like, get, if, if you get yeah, to like exactly. 15, <laughs> yeah, you're you, already and, having a good career. Precisely. And like the number of times you um, compete at the, I don't know, let's just say the, in brackets, top level. So let's just say the UFC is the top level. I How many, have any fighters in the history of the UFC fought 50 times in, in the UFC? Fuck no. Like I think maybe one or two people have fought 30 times. If even that. So, like, even to follow the most basic statistical rules to reduce error in data analysis, like the CLT, you need a, a database of um, results that doesn't exist in combat, like in MMA, and probably doesn't exist in most combat sports. So I guess my, my kind of point is, like, if you want to do deep statistical analysis of a pick rate of an analyst with respect to a specific fighter... You are, like, all kinds of fucked, bro. Um, like, that's on top of the, the, the issues involved with, like, how do you pick statistical numbers that matter? Because for those of you who love your sports statistics, I would gently remind you that... Now, I know nothing about baseball or basketball, right? Like, very little. I am fairly certain that they play, like, at least, you know... 50 games plus a season, like a baseball team or a basketball team. I'm right about that, right? Like, because I know that, like, there are players, like, um, you know, like, in, in those games that have played hundreds of games, like, hundreds and hundreds of competitive sports. And those sports are – actually, yeah, there's another point. But, like, they, they play hundreds and hundreds of games. So that gives you a lot of data, right? Like, that's a lot more data that you have to go over and try and find statistical tools. I think LeBron James has played like over 1,300 games in his career. That's a lot more data than, you know, uh, Yan, who I don't even think is at 20 fights, right? The yeah, other that's... thing that I'd point out is um, when LeBron James plays basketball, there's an assumption that there's a certain format of rules and time in basketball, right? Like basketball goes for X amount of minutes. It has... It breaks up the game in X periods that go for X time. This is stable and this is consistent. So when LeBron James scores points, we have a concrete sense of time that allows us to more statistically measure the contributions he's making in the game. But the thing about mixed martial arts is the sport can end at any time. Like if Yan walks across the field and just, you know, need Aljo's head off in the first 10 seconds and got disqualified, that's a 10-second fight. How the hell do you measure with any consistency a statistical factor for a 10-second fight compared to a 25-minute fight? I'm not saying you can't. You can. 
but it's a tremendously difficult and error-prone task when compared to analysing uh, the strike rate of a, you know, of a big-name hitter in a ba- in a baseball team that's playing a hell of a lot more games in their career to a more standardised and predictable statistical format. Everyone talks about how you can't exactly money moneyball fighting. You you don't play fighting and. Uh, You you can kind of do that, but we don't have the means to do that yet. So, uh, and about st- statistics, like for example, in uh, like as you mentioned in sports like basket basketball and uh, baseball, there's always like reliable ways of measuring all that stuff. But when you look at even boxing, with boxing, what's usually met, uh, measured by uh, the CompuBox thing, where you have the jabs and the power punches. I mean. What everyone treats CompuBox like it's some kind of like all-seeing, all-knowing artificial intelligence, and it's not. It's just <laughs> just two guys pushing buttons whenever someone gets punched and counting, and that's it. It's not a okay. reliable way of measuring anything. I mean, when you look at this, like how do you even measure what what is a power punch even? Different fighters hit with different amount amounts of power, and it's different power. It's not like it's a it's not like the UFC, this, that, that stupid fucking UFC game where you can slide. It's a slider that, that measures your hitting power. It's not. You, you some fighters just have heavy hands, like they look like just hitting like not hard, but people fall over. And uh, some fighters put a lot of power behind their shots, but they're not big hitters. And so like, uh, how do you measure a jab even like? Uh, Like in the, in the UFC, for example, significant strikes versus total strikes. A jab can also be a significant strike, technically, because if you th- throw out a flicking jab and cut a person open, and then they can't see your next shot coming, then it's a then it's a, it's a significant strike, but it still gets listed as a jab and not a significant strike, and not a power punch. And I mean, it's just we don't have the necessary. We we don't do not even possess the necessary metrics to measure all that stuff correctly and accurately. The the thing about the whole stats thing is a point. It can function as kind of some statistical kind of importance, but it's not going to be the highest amount of like importance when it comes to like fine analytics. So it's like, and here's why, because all the stats that you're getting basically are also one-time collections that are being done in real time. And 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 for those of you out there that are like, yeah, it's being given in one time, like, it's just, I know it's what you just said, but I'm adding to it. If you don't really want to, like, here's here's an exercise that I've done before, because this actually taught me how to watch fights closely. And this kind of distinguishes also like the whole idea of what an eye test is versus a statistics kind of idea. Here, Here's what you do. I want you to try doing your own strike counts for fights, like paying attention to what lands, what doesn't. If you need to focus on one fighter or both, that's totally okay. If you need to do it by minute, that's totally okay. Hey, but go at the same normal speed as it normally goes and, and then add them up at the end of the round and then do it again in slow motion and try to see if you come up with the exact same totals or if you start noticing what lands, what doesn't, what lands on arms, etc., and see how the strikes distinguish and see if that affects your perception of how the round works. But then you can also apply that to the next step if you start getting into like the whole analysis basis of, oh, how's this technique working and whatnot. 
So I that that's an experiment I would recommend, but no one is going to fucking do that. Then. Shut <laughs> up, <fucking> psycho. Shut <laughs> up. I learned. Just just to not bully Dan for a second, like just to point that out, then go to a game of soccer or a game of baseball or a game of basketball. You put the ball in the net. You put the ball in the hoop. You knock, you know, you knock the ball out of the fucking ballpark. There are objective, easy to verify measures for scoring in these other sports. But in MMA, a huge part of the effectiveness of whatever you do is does the other guy fall over and become unable to like effectively resist your ability to beat his head off? Like, you know. There's the subjectivity, and again, this is not saying you can't do statistical analysis. It's saying the error value involved in doing it is a million times higher. And yeah, that that brings us to the topic of how do you even evaluate stuff? How do you even do analysis? Like, uh, what what is the methodology you may use to understand this stuff? Because I didn't base my understanding of fighting off any sort of like statistics or anything. I just Sometimes I, I, as a child, I trained a little bit and then I sort of like read about how fighting works and then just sort of like went off my gut, basically like what made sense and what didn't. So this um, like this brings us to, I think, like three or four ways of how to understand fighting. So like you got uh, eye tests ba- and uh, eye tests are based off theoretical knowledge. And practical knowledge and understanding of fundamentals. So you got basically an eye test versus stats, and we've already went over how uh, went over how stats are un- an unreliable way of understanding fighting. So you that brings us to theoretical and practical knowledge and personal experience. And so uh, and so you always have this thing where, um, uh, for example, if you listen to certain fighter interviews, it can be a little bit baffling, maybe not even a little bit, just plain baffling how they approach their own understanding of fighting, and that it sometimes it seems like they don't even get what what it is that makes them so good at fighting. They just do whatever the coaches tell them to do. So um, what do you think about that? Dan, Hex? I think Dan's in the in the hating us mode because you know we're being mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, absolutely. And another component that's worth noting is like this is kind of true of all combat sports. Again, the variance drives like uh, it's harder to get a concrete process down. But the other part is you know it's MMA. The MMA meta is still very very fluid because number one, you know. Um, the fight the fight game of MMA is still very young. But number two, and I still think this is Jack Slack's most poignant and important point. He said this so many times. Um, you have a fighter. And that fighter to get to the top level of MMA is gonna have to be good at stuff, right? And that stuff is usually an extension of what they're athletically good at. Their God-given gifts, their boundary conditions, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you know. The interactions between fighter A and fighter B, strengths, which usually come from athletic strengths, built in a way that makes sense, clash, and, you know, stuff happens, and in the end, Tuman laughs about it on his Twitter page. But the point is, like, in this in this context, because the variance is so high, it's there's a lot of situations where even camps and fighters with well-developed processes that make sense and are layered and seem to be a pretty consistent, smart way of thinking about what they do what when they do it probably couldn't explain their processes to you because 
it, it's not enough to just, you know, a lot of top level competitors are very good at what they do, but they can't explain it. And the person behind them might be very good at explaining it to them, but can they explain it to a person outside their gym? These are all these are all the great questions and constraints of um of I suppose education, which Dan can talk a lot about. But m- maybe as a last point, if you're so say you have two people fighting and one person is just athletically more gifted. So pers- the champ is more athletically gifted than the challenger. The only way the challenger is going to win, all other things being equal, is they need to introduce something new because they're just going to lose if two, if one athletically gifted person and one less athletically gifted person smash against each other, right? That makes sense. So because MMA has so many different disciplines and so many more ways to win a fight, you know, you can knock somebody out, you can do it by submission, you can knock them out with about 10 different ways, blah, 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 fucking blah. Um, the, the the paths to victory are a lot, you know, they're a lot more diverse. And the interactions between those paths to victory are a lot more diverse. And in one sense, that's cool. That makes the sport interesting. But in another sense, to come at it from the poor fighter or the poor coach, it's really hard to explain the process for a sport, isn't it? Like It's a you know, nightmare um, to even begin to understand the sport because there's so much stuff to learn and so much stuff to get good at. And uh, so you get this thing where, like, uh, even with tons of personal experience, you may have spend that personal experience learning just basically what is basically useless useless things that will not help you win fights in the first place because like for example ed mentioned yesterday that um he was really concerned for uh francis and Gano's progress uh in his fur- uh, further career progress because he saw an embedded where they were teaching him how to do an arm triangle from top and like Will Francis and Gano like take Stipe Miocic down? Does that make any sense at all, or are they just wasting their precious time that where when Francis and Gano already came in late with specific, very specific attributes and very specific strengths that uh, like common sense would dictate that you should bank on those and lean into those instead of just teaching him random moves, and so. Uh, this is just uh, the danger of uh, being seduced by the variants of MMA. Yeah, so um, I, I'm going to repeat something you said because I think it's kind of important. So I, I remember a few years ago when I was getting into MMA and I was scrolling through just a bunch of random assorted articles that I could find. Because uh, I, I think whenever you get into a new hobby, you want to learn as much as you can about it. And I remember finding a list that talked about the top 100 MMA fighters ever. And what it did was it divided um, each fighter into a category based upon like some like arbitrarily designed like skill set or idea. It was like striking, wrestling, grappling, intangibles, and it gave them each a score out of 25. And in retrospect, that that list, first of all, has some pretty questionable like picks all around. But what it really, I, I think, um, demonstrates is this idea of um, that, that people don't understand, like, how high variance, like Iggy said, that this sport is. And so it's OK. Nobody will find this again. Um, that's why I'm here to share how much pain I have with you all. But but I think, like, the idea is um, 
I think, like, if we were to give, like, fighters, like, ratings in MMA, like, can you have, like, a perfect 10 out of 10 in every category? And I don't necessarily think that's realistic because they're each coming into different backgrounds or, like, different ideas and there's so much to consider. And that leads to different outliers or different ceilings. Like, I think um, we've decided there's, like, a good three or four, like, potential, like, routes that certain fighters can go. Like, you have specialists who can succeed. You have guys who become all-rounders who rely upon their, like, systemic process. Like, the sum of their parts is better than the whole. Like, a GSB or Volkanovsky. He, and it goes on to, like, guys who work in transitions, like Demetrius Johnson. And, and then you have guys like Jose Aldo. But I don't know if I can accurately describe what Aldo is, other than just, like, refined control. But... The whole idea of these kinds of people, well, yeah, Aldo's whatever he wants to be, fine. Um, so, I, but I think like asking yourselves, kind of like, why can't every MMA fighter do everything? I, I think is just kind of an unrealistic kind of expectation because, of course, they're not going to be able to do everything. And combined with the whole like, yeah, they're just going to have like set career paths, set training camps that influence like their potential. They're probably not going to have a lot of time to think about those either. I mean, coming back to boxing, uh, in boxing, you can't even like great boxers who are good at any range at every have every punch is perfect and uh, they can do everything in the ring are pretty rare. Everyone still people still specialize around things that make them that made them good or talented in the first place. So with MMA, it's even more pronounced with the amount of with the amount of the, the sheer amount of stuff you need to learn uh yeah so regarding uh an another question of like do you need personal experience to really like get this i think um i i've talked to like I, I i've seen this conversation before so i i come from a background where i don't have really any experience and any experience i do have is fairly recent but I don't have necessarily a background in it. I would say I'm just an avid listener, an avid thinker, an avid collaborator. And I talk to people who have had the experiences to kind of make up for maybe areas of weakness that I don't have. Because, again, I think collaboration is a big, important thing in this community that ought to really, really be, like, harped on more. And, and so, however, I think there's – um. There's a certain idea, like, do you need specialized knowledge? And I think probably hacks can probably add to this because I'll do a poor job completing it. Do you need, like, specialized knowledge to fully get this field? And the, the answer is probably no. You probably will have, like, incomplete data, but you can probably have, like, a firm enough understanding if you, like, put the effort into it. Because you're not going to understand, like, the medical profession, for instance – 100% without knowing like the terminology or having like the firsthand experience or observations like actually doing it, but you can research enough, you can collaborate enough with people who have to form some like concrete understandings as long as you separate what you do know versus what you potentially don't know. Like dealing in absolutes is a huge, huge dangerous thing that you got to be careful about if you're going to go into like any kind of analysis or field. That brings up the usual like axiomatic statements that everyone uh, goes around saying, for example, about, uh, uh, well, uh, things like punches you don't see being the most dangerous ones. And that's usually true. But uh, I mean, 
that really depends really it's not really a measured thing yeah and uh, there's lots of like these sort of old these sorts of old wives tales surrounding fighting which stem from uh, a trend someone like noticed over time many people noticed this happening over time but it, it's never been verified by anyone with uh, the ability to actually verify this or the equipment to verify this etc yeah yeah so absolute um so uh, sometimes after like fights you you might see some people go hey this guy showed like random head movement this guy um did the thing differently that means like he might beat this guy he'll probably beat that guy and that's kind of a dangerous route to go because um i'm gonna use um a kind of a philosophy i use called the say it to believe it kind of thing no sorry the see it to believe it so like people (laughs) people have been talking about like sean o'malley for a while and, and i kept asking myself i think sean o'malley is like a talented kind of fighter but have i seen him in there against someone who's gonna challenge him and like little areas that he's never experienced before and i gotta account for that and, and i think that that's kind of the asterisk a lot of us have with like khabib Nurmagomedov again because it's like everyone in their right mind at this point should be able to call khabib one of the best mixed martial artists of all time i don't think there's any argument with that but khabib hasn't faced certain competition or like certain matchups of guys that would give him trouble and there's still always going to remain questions about that but does that mean we're saying like Oh, he'll definitely lose to that, or he'll definitely win. No, that those aren't definites because I think Khabib has proven to be a very smart, like, like preparation savvy fighter. But that still does exist, like, as an analysis point. But that's not an absolute statement. An absolute statement would be Khabib hasn't fought this matchup, and that matchup would beat him. No, no, no. We're proposing like a hypothetical kind of question of like, like we got to be careful going to, through the spectrum of Khabib's unbeatable. Versus to the Khabib is definitely defeatable kind of thing, if that makes sense. That That's kind of the danger with absolutes. And a lot of people who want to be analysts, that that is a very easy trap to fall into. And a lot of people do fall into it. Yeah, but like that's uh, like um, coming back to the stats thing. There is a certain person uh, on Twitter that is infamous on Twitter. Uh, who is a big fan of stats, very big fan of stats. And uh, recently, after the uh, Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater fight, he came out saying that, uh, oh, Max Holloway is just simply like uh, a newer version of uh, Nate Diaz, who is somehow worse because he gets hit more often, uh, because the numbers the numbers tell him that he gets hit more often, and uh, the numbers don't lie, and whatever. Perfect illustration of... Uh, well, maybe not perfect illustration, but uh, certainly certainly an example of a person that you just described, Dan. Um, maybe to summarize the thing, he's fought so many good fighters compared to Sean O'Malley, and he's he's shown an ability to work within areas that he's less strong, but it doesn't seem unreal. Like, you know, ultimately O'Malley fought Cheeto, and even before he screwed his leg up, you could already see certain limitations, particularly with respect to ring craft and being able to counterpunch effectively if he couldn't get, you know, if he couldn't get Cheeto leading in. And Cheeto is, Cheeto is not a fighter at the level of the top lightweight guys. He's a good fighter, maybe even a great fighter, arguably, skill-wise, but he's not that good. So you can still learn meaningful things from watching what, what great fighters do, and Habib is definitely a great fighter. Um, so 
analysts and not knowing stuff and talking about stuff they know nothing about. Fun topic. How many different people can I shoot down on Twitter? <laughs> Everybody in chat like, no, don't do that. Um, okay, so there, I think it's absolutely possible to be a great analysis to know almost nothing about combat sports and never train. And Dan hit on absolutely like the key point is you need to be self-aware and understand your own limitations because MMA is a high noise activity. It is a high risk activity. And the more self-awareness you have, the better you're going to navigate that kind of stuff because you have a good understanding of what you don't know. What I would say is, is however, there are a lot of analysts in mixed martial arts who have clearly never done anything at a competitive level in their fucking <laughs> lives. And it is reflected <laughs> in the takes they have. It is genuinely upsetting. And, oh, God, I'm going to get... I'm going to get unfollowed by so many people, but, you know, like, whatever, who cares? So um, I think it is incredibly important to talk about any high-level competitive game to either have a lot of experience with high-level competition. That doesn't mean that you have to have played high-level competition or had high-level competition, but you have to be familiar enough with it to, you know, take it apart, right? So, like, maybe the most common example of these dumbass armchair analysts is they'll say stuff like, this guy, okay, so let's let's <laughs> let's use an example of, like, this guy has had this weakness his whole career, and he's, let's say he fights in a really aggressive, um, physically demanding, push-forward, pressure fighter style, and he's he's vulnerable to um, reactive wrestlers. Totally not mentioning any names. Um, and <laughs> he gets better at handling that over his career, but he never really gets good enough that it's not a weakness. People will say stuff like, "What a stupid fighter! I can't believe he never." He never fixed that in his career. He could have been so much greater if he had. What an idiot. These are the sorts of people that have never competed at the top level in anything or don't really understand competition, say. Because um, if you've studied competition, you know that everybody else at the top level of competition is so fucking good and so fucking motivated, usually, unless it's like light heavyweight, but nobody cares about that division. So they're all improving the stuff they're good at, too. The amount of time that a really high-level fighter fighting in the top 5%, 10%, or just top 5, top 10 in the UFC has to focus on adding new wrinkles to their game is not a lot of time. So if you have experience with high-level competition and the pressures, particularly a little bit of empathy and understanding of um, how exhausting that stuff is physically, you know, bodies break, training hurts us, we get old, we age out. Um, I, th I feel like you'd have a bit more empathy and understanding of why some flawed fighters can't change everything because it, it's hard. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't still make the same point that our theoretical pressure fighter with weak, weak wrestling has an Achilles heel. That doesn't mean that you can't, as an analyst, speak critically of what they could have done better. That's analysis. But I think it's almost like a I know it when I see it type thing. When you look at some analysis on MMA Twitter and they are saying like, this guy, I can't believe he didn't do this. I can't believe he didn't do that. What a moron. Um, it's kind of obvious that, like, they don't know anything about competition. And competition it's can like, be so many different ways. Like, you yeah, could do speed running. You could do chess. You could do, I don't know, anything. Anything can be high-level competition and have that pressure because it's about the human element. It's not about the game you're playing. And maybe just as a final thing, 
this is why, in a lot of ways, I'm pretty harsh of DC. So I do not have that <laughs> DC hate level that, like, other the Fight Site staff has. I put him in my top 20 until the, he retired. I, he's probably somewhere in, like, 25, 30 now for me, which I think is still an incredibly impressive um, situation and deserving of great respect. The problem with DC, or the reason I'm so critical of DC, is he has such an incredible level of athletic DC, ability. It's just, it's, just, it's just a run zone of you, like, <laughs> on YouTube, <laughs> holding a mug and looking yeah. smug. Like I, I did say this in the DC hate cast, but the, the reason I think DC is a good example of where if you have a strong competitive spirit, you should be critical is because DC had a weakness throughout every fight against a top level opponent from Gustafson to Miocic to the body. And at no point in his career did DC ever, ever show his ability to critically examine himself and go, maybe the fact that I have this weakness to the body shows a weakness in how I approach the fights. And I think Danny copped a lot of flack for his comments on that podcast, but he hit it beautifully when he said, <laughs> DC tried to treat the second Miocic loss as just a, oh, I got stupid and, oh, I got overconfident and he body punched me to death. It, it, that, that attitude of DC of not, oh, this had to have just been a silly rookie mistake rather than maybe, I'm not even saying that it is, but maybe this indicates a deeper flaw in me as a fighter that I could have assessed. That's the type of arrogance that I think is worth like um, critiquing. And I think, it, and I'm not even saying again that I hate DC. I think I'm saying it's a really good example of where if you have an understanding of competition, you do think it's worth critiquing because... Um, DC could have been so much more if he had adopted a policy of maybe it's my fault sometimes rather than, no, I lost and it's an abnormality and I just made a silly mistake. Because that's why Stipe beat him the third time. Uh, yeah, that that's the shining example for me. But that said, there's a lot of analysts who don't compete and they just they just blame fighters for everything. They don't recognize yeah, the constraints. Like, <clears throat> it's like uh, that uh, that guy I brought up uh, before that uh, the fucking what, what's his face that was uh, I think it was coast to coast Tim. Uh, one thing I really like, really annoyed me prior to the uh, I think uh, Calvin Cater Dan Ege fight where he was like oh Calvin Cater uh, just doesn't have that fighter mentality and he just gives up and just he doesn't have this ability to just push through adversity and that he's a pretender and whatnot and just I mean just fuck off like genuinely just just shut up go dig a hole jump into the hole and then we'll build a porter shitter on top of you I don't care about whatever that guy says and uh, this is just one of those examples of just incredible conceit like it's glaringly obvious that this guy has zero competition experience never actually in his life had to push through any sort of adversity, push through pain or any, or like even demonstrate any like willpower whatsoever. And so, uh, and this is like, this is the people that, um, this is the sort of person broader MMA fans uh, may associate the term fight analyst with. And that's, this is just, this is a giant sticking point with me. It just annoys me to no end, drives me up the wall with this stuff. Uh, but yeah, uh, about judging fighters, coming back to judging fighters and judging DC and whatnot. Yeah, while I agree that DC uh, by himself is an incredibly, uh, I'd say, arrogant person even, but uh, this um, in this case, 
it's it gets brought up very often and that a professional fighter probably has to be delusional to some extent in order to actually compete at the level he does because nobody really when you think about it nobody really gets to the for example i don't know uh an olympic wrestling competition um to the olympics in freestyle wrestling by thinking oh maybe i'll just maybe i'll try and get uh fifth place that'll make a good accounting of myself i'll show a good account of, of myself by placing fifth nobody thinks that everyone thinks about winning but uh that, that brings up the question of who is at fault whenever a fighter makes a baffling decision or another and that's uh for example maybe Maybe a fighter tries implementing some sort of a process, but he gets constantly interrupted by his coach who has, by his cook coach who has uh, different ideas about how fighting should should work. For example, the 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 Pat Militich gym that is that has been notorious for hard sparring because they thought I don't know that uh, hard sparring conditions your chin or whatever, or that sparring has to uh, approach fight conditions as close as possible to the point of being an actual fight an actual gym war but i don't know that's uh that's the amount of variables we have to work with in the fight game one of the um big issues with um any kind of analysis thing i i think like once again goes back to kind of like learning to separate kind of like with acknowledgement like have self-awareness for like your own biases but also like awareness of your experiences like a balance between those is really really important and the other thing once again i have to emphasize this enough context really really matters a lot so it's like like but also like recognizing that like communicating like ideas for audience goes both ways and i think this is a criticism that like everyone on our team could probably take including myself but um understanding like um that people can interpret some of our language depending upon our word choice is can kind of happen. So it's like we criticize like John Jones a lot. We criticize like light heavyweight a lot. We criticize like the heavier weight classes. And and I I do think there is something to be said that like as analysts, that is definitely something we could do better at because one thing that's really important to understand is that analysts aren't perfect. Once again, because we're not looking to like, be like decisive betters for like some high risk, high reward concept. We're mostly just looking to understand things and to explain things. And so like us being wrong ought to be seen as like a good thing specifically to the analysts themselves. Cause like when I'm wrong, for instance, it's really, really cool. So it's like, I didn't think Jose Aldo was going to put up as good of a fight against Jan as he did. I was wrong. I didn't think Max Holloway was going to like go back to the like back room and just go like, okay, how do I fix my style? And then like proceed to tear down one of the smartest fighters in the roster and come within margins of beating him. And in some people's eyes did beat him. And like that, that kind of stuff is cool to me. Like, cause it goes outside of my expectations and makes me kind of reevaluate things. And that's really, really important. And a lot of people just don't really seem interested in doing that in the analytical world. And so I, I think like there, there's a recent example of um like, times where we were all like kind of taken aback or mostly wrong and it, it kind of offers a learning experience. So it's like, like we are hard on like light heavyweight a lot and, and we are always going to say light heavyweight doesn't have like the best kind of bases. And if I do a poor job explaining this, one of you two jump in for me. 
but basically um a lot of us were picking like um Adesanya to make Jan Blakovic kind of look bad and, and although like we do always say light heavyweight is kind of like not the best or that Jones isn't the best that doesn't necessarily like be equivalent to saying like guys up there can't be good or guys up there have like never been good because I think we don't also kind of frequently be... it's also frequently used as an excuse for light heavy, light heavyweight and heavyweight being the way it is and that oh these guys are big and that's why they can't be good and that's not true like if you look at other sports other more well-established sports like for example boxing and wrestling or even at other sports that require a lot of athleticism that's where the the good big big guys are mostly because they're either well more well established or that they just simply pay better i think uh for us like the Adesanya like blakovitz fight was basically like uh, the one the one like big thing we forgot in our uh, peer uh ryan wagner touched upon this that kind of part of the downfall was that there is like a greater wrestling meta at light heavyweight that middleweight doesn't have. But one, one thing I'd also add to what Ryan says is that how light heavyweight kind of works is that it's more like physical kind of based, I think, than middleweight can kind of be. Like guys are more willing to like get into these really ugly grinding kind of fights. And although like they can be ugly, like that still like indicates there's like a level of toughness there. But that that's kind of the thing we did genuinely i think most people forget about but there is something that we didn't really like know that we did learn genuinely um so it's like blakovitz ended up fighting an incredibly intelligent fight like i i don't really think any of us saw that kind of discipline coming and the fact that he did do that th that's a legitimately impressive thing and that kind of ought to make us take a step back and go like well, that's kind of a sign right there that maybe like saying light heavyweight being ultimately bad can be a little short-sighted. But like you just pointed out, Iggy, like we've never been saying it can't ever be good. And I think like Blakovic's kind of doing what he did is a good indication of that. But it's it's also just um, – I, I always touch upon this a lot, but just being careful with like absolutes with analysis is really, really important and it's why like rewatches count. It's why like like being attentive counts and whatnot. So it's like I always go to my example of like Gaethje. It's like people, especially mainstream people, are like Gaethje is hittable, and it's like if you pay close attention, like he's hard to hit. The real problem with Gaethje is like that gas tank problem and well, miscellaneous other things like a sense of balance to his style. But he gets hit a lot because he spends a lot of time trying to hit the other person in the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> that's yep. not, naturally that's why he's going to get hit a lot because i mean it's a firefight uh maybe maybe to add two things so like i like to hate on light heavyweight because it's funny because people jump in and defend it but um i think in the case like so let's go back to john jones and dc again these fighters should be in your top 30 john jones probably in your top 10 right like may maybe some people might argue he's out of the top 10 now because he lost the race fight, like, let's call a spade a spade. And he arguably lost the Santos fight. And when you lose some fights, you know, your movement in the top is, is going to come along. But um, I think the example of light heavyweight is you had fighters who had tremendous athletic gifts and I think tremendous minds for the game, particularly in Jones and DC in their own way. I think I would kind of typify them, and this is why I think the language and discussion about them has gotten so murky, 
they didn't really keep improving. So, like, I'll, I'll compare them to somebody like uh, Yan. Yan is not at his best when he's on the back foot, right? For sure. But Yan has, a, and, and he's not at his best when he's fighting a intelligent, disciplined striker who can put him on the back foot with striking and then mix in wrestling. Yet, if you look at how Yan handled Aljo in both of those respects, fighting off the back foot and um, dealing with a mixed striking wrestling threat, he showed clear, intelligent, principled, bit-by-bit improvements over the Yan that fought Magomed, right? Like, I think everybody can agree with that. Then you go and you look at kind of like Jones and DC as kind of the upper bars of light heavyweight, and it's like, did they ever show that level of gradual, continuous improvement over their careers for that period of time? Because I feel like Jones and DC kind of plateaued at a point. Like Ed's breakdown of the John Jones wrestling, which I think is on Bloody Elbow, is to me the perfect example. Jones tried new stuff even relatively late into his career, and I do think it's worth acknowledging that in both Jones and DC, compared to fighters in lighter divisions... Their age in fight years, DC with a long career of wrestling, Jones with a career of wrestling and starting young as a mixed martial arts fighter, they probably weren't able to adapt as much as somebody like Yan, all other factors being equal. But they just didn't adapt as much. The game kind of moved on, and people still looked up to them and said, these guys are still two of the best guys in the sport, pound for pound, top five, probably top three. And I think trying to analyze and explain to people a situation where a fighter is probably still as good as they ever were but they are relatively less good because the level of mixed martial arts has adapted and improved and moved beyond them is a very difficult concept to get across with clarity and maybe to to go back to uh you know big jan's boxing clinic jan used the threat of power advantage on Adesanya to, you know, smack him when he came in. That's something that we're really only seeing fighters as good as Volkanovski, Geishi, even to some extent fighters like Khabib, you know, using high power single shots to establish wrestling threats. He had a dedicated game plan that he stuck to for five rounds, which fuck, even some of the champions in the lower divisions can't do that. Uh, <laughs> and, and he mixed in wrestling and boxing together in a multi-layered threat to completely disarm an Adesanya witch. And I fucking called this all the way back with the one podcast I did with Danny. We still don't know how Adesanya is going to handle that. Although I did expect him to beat Yan. I didn't think Yan was the one that would ask that question, but Adesanya hadn't ever answered it. Yeah, Um, I was definitely expecting the power power age to give him pause at least. Yeah. Like like people always uh, downplay that thing. Mostly people who, who... have never experienced being hit by big people, <laughs> but it's actually it actually you know it, it hurts a lot. <laughs> so and uh, if you're not a psycho, you do not wish to get hit by a big person. So that's uh, that's uh, true for a normal person, and that's true for a fighter as well. They're not like cyborgs. So I, I guess to just kind of reframe it, like the, I guess the two points there is like. It's hard to explain to people that somebody becomes less good because the game moves on and they don't grow. That's very hard to explain and teach. And I think the awareness of how to do that is still growing in the analytical community across all 
parts of MMA. And and to be fair to all analysts, MMA is improving so fast, it's hard to teach that. that that's the first part I'd say. The second part is... I, I would to, to relate it all the way back to an understanding of competition. This is a good example to me of where people that don't have a lot of experience following high-level competition can show that lack of experience because, like, and I've kind of kind of tried to stress this, when you have a bunch of people, like, I think eSports is a good example because it was able to keep going or whatever you want to call it, competitive video games. It was mostly able to keep going through COVID. You know, six months in Counter-Strike competitively can be the end of a dynasty. Like, a team that's been dominating for two years can become barely a top-five team. Barely relevant. It's happened. It happens. Um, because Not because they got bad or because they even fell off. Just some situations because they didn't improve as everyone else from two to ten that is hungry as hell to be the number one team. You know, and, and I think that concept is... Maybe I think actually the biggest and most important insight you get from if you want to do analysis, understanding top level competition, because it's one thing to go, oh, yeah, I follow, I don't know, soccer. I know that teams get better. It's another thing to have played at at least like a decent level, maybe like a state or top regional level in wrestling and know how hard some of the other talented guys are getting ready to beat you when you're top three like that, that. Um, that true emotional experience based understanding of just how cutthroat competition can be, I think not only equips you with the tools to be fairly critical of somebody like DC who was at the top for so long and never once seemed to ask the question, maybe, maybe I've stagnated, maybe it's my fault, but also to appreciate and have empathy, again, for the DC example, to understand DC was a 38 to 40-year-old man with years on the clock. He was probably never going to reinvent himself, even if he did have that self-awareness, but that also doesn't excuse that he didn't have it. And I think that gets you to a middle point where you can see somebody like DSC as a truly great fight, fighter and a truly respectable fighter, but who was also flawed and was affected by arrogance in a way that made him less than what he should have been if you look at the, the individual parts of him as a great fighter. He became less than the sum of his parts, so to speak. Well, I mean, that's just uh, brings us back to the question of what is nuance? that uh, not many people are able to answer, like in general, not even in the MMA community. And uh, yeah, that, to that point about um, games moving on, sometimes people also misuse even that. Like they understand that the game moves on, but they cannot understand where that is applicable. After uh, Peter Jan beat uh, Jose Aldo, some people came out saying that, oh, Aldo hasn't, lost a step he didn't decline he's not uh short or whatever but it was the game that moved on and it's just that Jan is some kind of a new breed of fighter and that's just blatantly untrue if you've uh, followed Jose Aldo's uh, career for any like significant significant extent of time or even just simply caught up on all the fights that uh, that featured him or studied Jan's game, it's just it's still all fundamental stuff. It's just that if you think about it, Aldo gave Jan a very grueling sort of uh, fight. He gave him a hell of a fight. And uh, if uh, Aldo was able to, to still do things past, past the three-minute mark, then we might be looking at a, a completely different fight. Uh, so that's uh, just 
one more point that people should keep in mind when talking about high-level competition experience and high-level athletes. Uh, yeah, I suppose that brings us to the question of uh, what really, what re- what really is a flaw in the first place when you evaluate someone's game and when you evaluate a fighter and his place in the top ten or top twenty or whatever. There is a clear distinction between a flaw and a habit. And uh, again, Jack Slack used to talk about this a lot. In that, to beat a high-level fighter, high-level fighters do not usually have like flaws or big holes in their games per se. And I. I disagree with that slightly because in MMA it is entirely possible to get to a high level and not experience competition that would test uh, a certain deficiency in your game. But they still develop certain habits that have allowed him to get to that level. And in order to win against them, the principle still stands that you have to exploit those habits in order to win. Um, Yeah, so basically... um... Thank you. That is correct. That is my name. Uh, so I think um, the thing about flaws, and I've, I've talked to our friend of the site, uh, Downward Elbow, about this a lot because he had a lot of trouble with identifying flaws at first, and he's not alone. Like one of the hardest things I, I think to learn as an analyst or like learning to be an analyst is recognizing flaws of fighters, especially in MMA as something as fluid as it is. Cause it's like, unless you see like guys face certain guys, you're not going to necessarily see that. Like Iggy said. And so you kind of have to have guys who think outside the box tactically or strategically to kind of exploit those kinds of things. Or you kind of just have to have like that matchup specific thing in order to show those flaws. So it's like, and it gets really hard when you're dealing with certain guys who are like really, really good. It's like, so if I was to ask someone what Alexander Volkanovsky's biggest flaw is and or just like his issues as a fighter, how many people do you think are going to be able to pick up on that immediately? And the reality is I picked up on my on it myself only like after a while of watching. But but the answer is Volkanovsky's issue is that ultimately his entire game is incredibly cohesive and it's like augmented by him being one of the most intelligent fighters in MMA. Those are his strengths, but like his game is ultimately, and I came up with this with Ed it is ultimately just, it's a system, but it's the sum is greater than the whole of the parts as if to say without one thing working, the other things aren't going to work too. Cause when you break down little things, Volkanovsky does those kinds of things like individually on their own, aren't going to, be able to work but together like that's where they're the most successful and only a fighter like volkanovsky who can put those things together is going to be able to like mitigate that those kinds of things because holloway in fight number two basically figures out in fight number one no less oh so this guy's backwards like ring craft isn't like necessarily the best i'll just start exploiting things to take away his main weapons and tools push him up against the fence and then punish him then I'll punish like those little blitzes he does, like those little things he does, specifically the habits, and make them into a flaw. So it's like to, to distinguish flaws from habits is like habits aren't necessarily flaws, but they are things that can be made into flaws with like the right preparation, strategical things. And I think Holloway Volkanovsky, too, is a prime example of a guy recognizing like some guy's habits and then turning them against them. 
and forcing that other guy to respond and rethink how he uses his flaws to reinvent like the scope of the fight, which is another reason why that fight is fucking brilliant. Um, but habits themselves, uh, I, I have a hard time explaining this, but I think the first thing is understanding that every fighter in MMA is inherently going to be flawed. Aldo is probably the least flawed fighter from like a technical perspective, but there's also like certain things. I, I know Hax has talked about like fundamentals versus technicalisms, and I think he can probably distinguish that again if he feels like it. But I, I think recognizing that fighters themselves aren't perfect and trying to gradually figure that out just requires a lot of referentialism and practices. Habits, I think, are just things they do. And they aren't necessarily bad, but with the right circumstances, they could be used against them and so on and so forth. I almost think flaws is like a, you'll know it when you see it type thing. But my, my kind of thought process, and I think Jack's like, again, talking about the difference between habits and flaws is really great, but he didn't go far enough. So maybe I'll try and build on the Jack Slack theory of calling things cool names while sounding British. Only I don't sound British. So I view it like this. Um, MMA doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Like, we're not designing a fighter in the creative fighter fucking chart in a UFC game. I've never actually played a UFC game. I'm pretty sure they're trash. Fight me! So I view it like this. Every fighter who wants to be a fighter has a bunch of athletic attributes, right? Like, they have to. And every fighter who's getting to the top in the world has to have a bunch of athletic attributes they're really good at. And these are not even things necessarily that they've quote-unquote chosen. They just are. You are never going to get to the elite level of wrestling or boxing or kickboxing or mixed martial arts or grappling if you don't have athletic attributes because you're fighting the best people in the world. Now, they might be better athletes than you, but you've got to have something, right? Like, that's why we all celebrate Benil Dariush because he doesn't seem to have many athletic attributes, but he still wins fights over far more athletically gifted fighters in lightweight. So... You have these athletic attributes. You're going to need to build your game around using those athletic attributes. And not notice, I'm not saying abusing those, using them. You have to, because if you're a great athlete and the other guy you're fighting against is a great athlete, whoever uses their athleticism through their skills better is probably going to win, right? Like, that's just, that's yeah, just that's, logical. Yeah, that's just the distinction between, like, many people are, keep um, saying lately in that, oh, athleticism is cheating, Oh, he's just athletic. That's all he does. He just athletes people. And that's, uh, they still leverage their athleticism in certain ways to win the fight. And so that it's not just being like, quote unquote, a cheater by being just simply more physically gifted than the other guy. So uh, there's, there's a distinction to be made here. Imagine somebody saying that. They must have no experience in competition to say something like that. Like that is just that is just an attitude that really just tells me like you're ignorant of competitive pressure to be like, <laughs> oh, he's more naturally gifted, so he wins. Like, come on, man. I think uh, within a set, I, I'm quoting something Ryan said because I think he summed it up the best to me once. But like, if you're watching um, MMA, for instance, within like a set orthodoxy, you're always gonna get like some unfamiliar methods. So. I think, like, we point out to guys like Tony and Yoel a lot because they really, really are different from a lot of thresholds because they do so much wrong, and yet they still keep winning consistently just because of how they've, like, leveraged their certain things. 
Um, I, I'm less like good with Tony, but I feel like I kind of got a grasp on like Yoel's process. But it's like you, a lot of like recent MMA stuff is very like built around that kind of like fast-paced initiative. And you see someone with Yoel who is less about like being initiative and more like reactive. But he eventually like turns that around on you to kind of like break you down. But he just zeroes in on only little things he considers important as responses, preparatory or like in response in the moment. And he's able to do that just because he's sharp enough to like figure out how it works. But he's also like leveraging his personal gifts to make it matter, you know. Um, that's the, th- that's, that's the thing. So it's like, Yoel is different, but like, and he does, and he kind of breaks rules a bit. So you could call him a cheater, but he's kind of a cheater for like reasons and saying like, he's just a cheater kind of ignores kind of like asking the questions of why. Yeah. He's also like, people say, oh, he just explodes whenever he wants to. He just does things arbitrarily like a dog. This is something that, uh, Ed Gallo has pointed out, uh, I think, either in an article or just in general conversation in that uh, Yo Romero actually thinks more like a freestyle wrestler more than anything in that he wants to kind of look at what you're doing and then based on that information just do score big in front of the judges and then uh, secure his win condition. Who, who, hmm, he fights like the combat sport that has defined much of his life. Who saw that coming? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to mock it because it's actually a really powerful insight. But like the fact that people are shocked by that insight is very funny to me. Like it takes it's a classic example of really good analysis. Actually, Ed, please don't kick me off the site um, because like Ed is able to identify something that nobody really saw. And he's so obvious, yet actually it makes a really meaningful point. Yeah, okay, I've covered my ass. It isn't going to fire me, at least this week. So back to the point. <laughs> so back, back to the point. Um, so we've established that fighters have, like, athletical gifts, right? So if you want to win, you have to use those gifts. Well, if you have those gifts and you want to win, the, the, the techniques that you use and the game that you build, assuming that, you know, you're building around your athletic abilities, is going to take a certain shape. Like, you know, John Jones really has terrible boxing technique, right? Like, nobody denies that. But John Jones is probably always going to fight long based on his athletic gifts and his eye for the clinch. He's probably even the perfect optimized 10 out of 10 in all stats. John Jones is probably never going to make boxing much of a priority. He's going to be a long rangy fighter who picks you apart with kicks. And then you get into the clinch because he is athletically built for the long range fighting. And he is, um, he is a tremendous brain for the clinch, or at least he used to, it's kind of hard to measure it now because of the athletic decline and, you know, he's the sort of person who'd rather hit a pregnant woman while on drugs. So, <laughs> so like, within that, within that theoretical perfect way for John Jones to fight based on his tremendous athleticism, he's going to start doing things repeatedly. He's going to lean towards way to utilize his length to score points so that he can win the fight. That's going to make habits. He's going to find and refine and build specific techniques that best use his athletic abilities. That's where the habits come from in my book. And, that, and, and if you want to beat John Jones, you have to start punishing his habits. 
Are there also flaws in John Jones's game? Well, yes, his mid-range game, particularly when it's reliant on anything to do with boxing, is a fantastic example of a flaw because it's something that he could improve and he could have countermeasures, but he's never really had consistent countermeasures, I'd, I'd argue, in his whole career against somebody that can kind of do what Reyes did, and Reyes didn't even do it particularly well. So I, I would kind of say the difference between a habit and a, a flaw is a habit is something that is constructed as part of a fighter's trying to win process. It's something they do that makes sense and follows all the way back to, um, this is not all habits, but these are habits that are not flaws that it kind of flows all the way back to a victory condition. That's consistent. I would say a flaw is essentially a habit, but it is a habit that has a certain fundamental incoherence or disconnection with their game. There's no reason John Jones can't have improved boxing capabilities. There's literally no reason. And he doesn't need to, you know, box well to score points. He just needs to be able to box well, so to speak, that you can't beat beat him the shit, you know, sorry, beat the shit out of him in, in that area. So, yeah, I would say, like, a habit is kind of an intentional construction that, is related to, you know, the fighter's win mechanics and win conditions. And a habit is kind of an unintentional weakness that results from stuff they could address but haven't. And there are many valid reasons for why they can't. I mean, you know, I don't think Miocic is going to ever fix his weaknesses in the clinch, um, which do look <laughs> like flaws at this point because he's 38. Like, a 38-year-old heavyweight ain't fixing those types of problems. He would have done it when he was 32. But even if a flaw is reasonable and i think many flaws are reasonable nobody should ever expect um habib to be a striking savant he just didn't have the fundamental basis in it from a young age but flaws are still flaws and they can still be picked apart by a truly great fighter yeah that brings us back to the uh, well having some sort of empathy i don't know or compassion for the fighters when you're criticizing them because again this is a very there's so many many variables with this sport. There's there's so many variables with this sport, and uh, catching on to what really makes you uh, makes your game tick is kind of a trial and error process, and you and you do not have all that much time at the top, and so even when you get to the top, even with good coaching, even with the right approach, it's still it, it's still a bit of a crapshoot, especially if you're starting out late, especially if you started out with MMA, which also hurt some fighters, because there, there was always this there was always this hypothesis that at some point MMA fighters will just start training out MMA instead of coming from certain athletic backgrounds. And we've learned that uh, these like perfect all-rounders that just train MMA, they always fell apart after getting to a certain level. So it's not really... So this brings into question the methodology the various camps use. The thing that I think just when it comes to analysis, especially like just learning it, like kind of ask yourself again, like if you really want to learn it, I I think, um, believe it or not, like I think those of us on TFS are more receptive than we probably come across on Twitter because we're all snarky assholes. But, um, I, I can flat out say like, we are honestly only trying to like, help spread a community that like appreciates fights and fighters for what they do. And and that's kind of the idea of analysis. We're teaching like, we're at least trying to like build a community of like controlled empathy for what they do. Like Iggy said, but also just like 
respect them the best we can. And I feel like that that's kind of ideally what we're trying to do. So if you want to learn, if you want to do this, um, you are welcome to reach out. I have, I can't speak for other people, but I do have open DMs for a reason. And as long as you're not just, well, basically a weirdo and whatnot, uh, just you're welcome to reach out and I'm happy to read things, happy to support, but just understand that like, I won't be able to teach you everything and everything you do is probably going to require you to kind of like take that initiative for yourself. But, um, it's all practice. It's all like time commitment. And, but most of all, you kind of just got to love it. Like don't, don't get into this and you discover like, if it's not worth it, like don't pursue it. And I think that's okay. No one's going to judge you for it, but also don't assume that you know everything all the time. Cause I promise you, none of us on this panel do like we can come across like that sometimes, but we really don't. No, no, I, I'm not even trying to come across as a smart person in the first place. I don't like calling myself a smart person or an analyst or a, an expert in anything. It's the, it, I mean, it's the first like disclaimer I put it everywhere in each of my works. One fight I think that can often like distinguish, um, because Iggy and I talk about this fight, and it's also because it's a pretty good one, uh, to study in general. Um, I think a good fight to kind of like help instruct people or to like teach yourself like or to see for yourself how well people really try to think about how MMA works or like thinking about like the process behind it is uh Piotr Jan versus Jimmy Rivera because there are clear like little habits and weaknesses in that fight between both guys and despite that though there is a pretty clear like threshold like narrative that is happening throughout that fight and although some people are going to, like, argue that um, R- Rivera is the winner of all that, that's not necessarily true because it kind of ignores a lot of the little things happening. So treating as a, a fight like that as a round-by-round thing without paying attention to all the little things that happening, and, and that's kind of the, the importance of rewatching and, like, paying close attention, and there are many ways to do that. Um, I, I think that's a very good fight to like practice analysis on if you want something to work with, because I, I can speak from experience doing something like Volkanovsky Holloway too is an extremely tough fight for even like the most studious of an analyst to like study. And I think maybe to add on what Dan said, um, I, I respect a lot of takes on the Rivera fight. I know a lot of people in the fight, so I just want to beat the shit out of people that think Rivera has an argument for winning that. I said somebody in our team gets bullied all the time for insisting that Rivera won that. But um, I would I would ask this question. There are people out there who genuinely use that fight as an argument for the idea that Yan is actually not that impressive of a, a five-round fighter. Now, I think based on the evidence we've seen post that fight, this is a very wrong take. Yan might be the best five-round fighter in the UFC. For me, it's between him or Volk. Now, I don't want to call out people that made that prediction because that's pointless. What I think would be a cool intellectual exercise is don't just look at the Rivera-Yan fight. Ask yourself, what did people see in this fight that made them think Yan actually might not be a five-round fighter because 
I think the general consensus, and I think the consensus that has been proven right, and I think the consensus that is valid on that fight is Yan is a fucking monster of a five-round fighter. But, you know, it's an interesting take to argue that he isn't from that fight. You know, and, and given that we have some evidence that take is probably wrong, study it, take it apart. Think about why people came to that conclusion. Try and see what they saw. You might learn something, and at the bare minimum, you might learn some empathy. Yeah, I think it's a kind of the reason, one of the reasons why people think that Riviera has an argument for winning that fight is that he scored more, quote unquote, landed more, quote unquote. But, um, and uh, they say that, oh, Riviera was winning that fight until he got knocked on his ass. Basically, he was kicking Jan's ass until he got knocked down. And I mean, why do you think he got knocked down? <laughs> Jan put him in those positions where he was able to knock Riviera down and almost knock him out. It's not like Jan randomly just connected on him and randomly unloaded on him and just landed. It's not luck. I mean, if you look at his process, it's like the Yoel example. Yoel is not a very active fighter. That's an understatement. But as he thinks, because as Ed said, he thinks like a freestyle wrestler and so he has a certain move that he goes to his go-to move or his he decided that against this opponent uh this particular move will work best and so he waits for his opportunity to do that yan with his amateur boxing experience thinks more like a boxer and so he he doesn't he doesn't necessarily think in terms of outlanding his opponent he thinks about positioning he thinks about ring craft he thinks about stuff like setting up traps for his opponent and so this is what basically what he did in every in his every appearance in the UFC. Uh, have you have you managed managed to come up with the with a definition for what is analysis? What do you think then? I mean, I still kind of stand by what I said earlier. I think it's just the science of like explanation. Just like it's about explaining things, creating meaning, and giving like it's some extrapolation to people who are listening and kind of simplifying it. Cause um, you can like know all the like little things in the world, but what does that really mean if you can't really explain them to other people, you know? So I, I think analysis has like a benefit in like building community, but also like building knowledge and respect for this sport specifically in this context. Hacks. Any closing words? Maybe maybe three. Uh, number one, MMA is noisy. That noise makes analysis hard, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Uh, number two, I think everybody does do analysis. People shouldn't be intimidated to do it. If you try something or you put an idea out there for testing and it fails, then you've learned that it was wrong. That's way better than not putting an idea out there and learning nothing. And uh, number three, I think that people that want to analyze more should try and connect with or develop a bond with high-level competition of some kind. doesn't matter what it is because it's not about the competition. It's about the human-to-human competition connection. And I think that will give you more empathy and more insight into the pressures that these guys are operating under. Yeah, I guess uh, my conclusion would be that... Uh... I mean, uh, the fight analyst community, quote unquote, was um, uh, was brought about as an as a sort of an organic process that uh, we we didn't just decide 
no one in uh, in our group of friends, for one, or for, for example, no one just decided that I'm the fight analyst and I'm going to sit here and explain to you how the fight game works. No one did that. No one does that. Uh, people just kind of, people become fans of, of a certain thing. People become fans of uh, of the sport and just uh, become enthusiasts and uh, really wish to, and it's just kind of, you kind of want to understand what you're watching. It's not really, and it's not about really competing in terms of uh, takes or understanding. It's just trying to understand some things better. And naturally, like, uh, and naturally some disputes will, will rise. It's just an organic process. It's not, uh, it's not something weird and unnatural. And the reason why some, some of the fight site analysts may be, uh, maybe may seem somewhat combative. It's just that the community itself, by nature, is pretty combative, and uh, some takes are just just really annoying. We're all one great big happy family. <laughs> but yeah, I guess uh, we've done the best job we could to try and begin covering this topic in some in some detail. Maybe at least summarize all this stuff. So, all right, I guess. Uh, I guess that's enough of that. Uh, we've tortured ourselves and uh, the listener enough, talking about for almost two hours now. Uh, subscribe. Uh, check out the fight site. Uh, almost forgot to say this. Almost forgot to plug my own website, my own employ- <laughs> employer's website. Check out the fight site for analytical content and uh, check out our YouTube channel for Fight breakdowns. Check out our second YouTube channel that's been recently started for long-form content. All of our podcasts are also available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Simplecast, and all that stuff. And uh, subscribe to our Patreon and gain access to all all of our analytical special content and special custom content like alternate commentary tracks, specific uh, podcasts about, for example, uh, for example, career evaluations, resume breakdowns uh, done by Ed Gallo. There's a stretch goal that we're trying to reach. If we reach uh, 200 patrons on Patreon, then we are going to uh, write five breakdowns on the top five best fights of all time in MMA and uh, write and record some commentary for those. So for as little as three bucks per month, you can just subscribe and gain access to all this. If you pay us $5 per month, if you choose to pay us $5 per month, then you gain access to a Discord server full of other freaks such as us, and if you're a freak, you're welcome. If you're a if you're a psycho that's uh, listened to the end of uh, this whole thing, then then you just that just settles it. You belong to us. You belong in the community, in the fighter community. All right. Uh, any last comments from you guys? Well, see you all in hell. Even though we're already there. Old man Hex, are you going to yell at clouds again? No, I think that's Ed's job. But, uh, you know, keep trying. Um, MMA needs people that care about it because <laughs> the UFC sure as fuck doesn't. <laughs> yeah, we, we need analysts, but we also especially need measured analysts. And so if you want to get there, hey, we're here to support you all the way. Like, I mean, sincerely. I mean, if you want to make this uh, community better, you don't even have to be a good analyst. You just have to understand that uh, Dana uh, is a big, bold cunt that lives in a cunty house and drives a cunty car. And that's why this sport is the way it is. And uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess this is it for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to us prattle on about uh, whatever it is we talked about. I'm already, <laughs> I'm already starting to forget. I'm, dementia is starting to set in. Dementia is settling in, and uh, I guess we need to just stop this. All right, peace.